Thank you so much for joining us this morning. After I'm sure it was a long night at the party. Hope you all had fun. So I'm Bob Griffiths. I'm a solutions architect for um, AWS. And joining me today from FINRA, we have um, Brett Schreiber, um, Senior Director um, in Market Surveillance for FINRA, and um, Ricardo Portilla, who is a lead architect in Market Surveillance. So today, um, I'm just going to basically set the table and talk about uh, what is Spark and how do you run Spark on AWS. And if there's a bunch of Spark experts in the room, I apologize. This is going to be pretty high level, but um, I'm going to assume that some of you aren't familiar with Spark, so I'm just going to set a baseline uh, understanding of what Spark is and how you can run it on AWS. And then I'm going to hand it off to um, Brett, who's going to take over and talk specifics about how they use Spark on AWS for aligning time-ordered events um, in their market surveillance area. So Spark, what is it? So Spark is a general-purpose um, data processing framework. Um, it's generally good for big data. That's what it's mainly used for. If you think historically what you use um, Hadoop for, you know, MapReduce, um, was one of the first platforms used for big data. Um, you can use Spark for the same type of jobs, um, but the advantage of using Spark over something like MapReduce is you're going to get mainly the speed um, improvement. So if you use um, you know, Spark's memory capabilities, uh, you can get about 100 times faster um, results than you would using MapReduce, um, and then 10 times faster if you just use you know, disk-based processing. So, Spark has a foundational layer, Apache Spark, and it also comes with um, a set of libraries that are um, pre-made for you to use. There's Spark SQL if you want to run standard SQL queries on top of Spark. There's a streaming library. There's a machine learning library. There's a graphing library, as you can see there. Um, you can use Java, Scala, Python, and R. So very good, very popular framework for running um, data processing jobs. Today, and if you want to learn more, um, just hit the Apache Spark website up there, spark.apache.org, and uh, go and poke around. There's a lot of good information out there about Spark and um, the various libraries that you can use. So what about running Spark on AWS? Can you run Spark on AWS? Of course you can. We have, um, there's various ways you can do it. So Spark itself comes in a standalone cluster mode. So you can just spin up EC2 instances. EC2 is our um, general compute service, Elastic Compute Cloud. I assume you all know that. Um, so you can just spin up multiple EC2 instances, install Spark in its native standalone cluster mode. It has its own built-in job scheduler, and just install it, and you're ready to go. Just run it on top of EC2 directly. Spark also supports um, Apache Mesos as the job scheduler. So if you're comfortable with that and you already use that and you know how to use it, again, you can spin up EC2 instances on AWS, um, install Mesos and install Spark on top of that, and then you can use, use that to, to run your, your, your jobs. And finally, Amazon EMR, is, uh, um, EMR stands for Elastic MapReduce. That is our managed Hadoop framework. Um, Spark is a first-class citizen on um, EMR meaning that you can just specify when you launch a cluster that you want um, Spark to be installed. So when you launch a cluster, either the console or through the CLI, you can just specify, you know, I want, as one of the applications I want installed is Spark, 
And when the cluster boots and comes up, Spark will be installed and ready to go. Um, and on EMR, uh, Spark uses the, the YARN job scheduler. So what about storage? So this is not a comprehensive list, nor is it a mutually exclusive list. So Spark can support many, many types of storage um, from which to do their um, do your processing. I'm just going to focus on a few things on here because these are more AWS specific. But again, it's not comprehensive. There's many other data stores that you can use to run your Spark jobs. Um, so I'm just going to run through this real quick. We have um, you know, a traditional thing like if you're using Hadoop. Um, Hadoop comes with HDFS, um, um, Hadoop file system. And the traditional way to do that is to run HDFS on ephemeral storage, uh, local instance storage um, on EC2. So that is an option if you want to have your data right with your compute, which is a traditional way that you would run MapReduce jobs or high pig jobs on, EM, on EMR. You can also run Spark um, using that as your storage, your primary storage. You can also, since you're running on EC2, you can um, instead choose to use EBS, which is our Elastic Block Store, and uh, run your jobs on Elastic Block Store, which are attached to your EC2 instances. Um, that's another option. Um, Amazon S3 uh, Simple Storage Service is our foundational object store, very high durability. Um, basically unlimited scale, very good um, input-output characteristics. So I'm going to have some more slides later on this and focus on S3, but S3 is a very good place to store um, data for your big data jobs. Um, a lot of our customers, including Finra, use it as a, a data lake. Um, from which they run various types of processing jobs, including Spark. And finally, um, Amazon DynamoDB. DynamoDB is our managed NoSQL database. And again, a Spark can um, call into that. Um, if you've got data that fits nicely into a, a NoSQL database, um, Spark works very nicely with DynamoDB. And again, this is not mutually exclusive. If you have data... Um, on S3, or you want to put data on HDFS, and you have Dynamo, data in DynamoDB, um, that's fine. You can uh, write your jobs to pull from all these data sources. You don't have to pick just one. So I think Werner mentioned in his keynote yesterday that you know we provide a full two set, tool set um, of applications. So you want to use the right tool for your specific workload and your specific data. So if your data and your workload you know fits better in um, an S3 or DynamoDB, please use that as appropriate for your, your specific workload, and then just write your Spark queries to pull from the appropriate data sets. So I just wanted to touch quickly on um, some other customers that are using Spark. Obviously, FINRA is using Spark, and you're going to hear quite a bit from them in a few minutes about um, the specifics of how they're, they're using it um, in their workloads. But if you go out to um, our public website, aws.amazon.com, and just search for Spark, you're going to see a number of customers up there that use Spark um, on AWS. Um, these are just three that I grabbed from the website. And again, you can go um, look at the case studies out there yourself. Please do. I want to focus in a little bit on the middle one, Crux. They are doing um, processing using um, ephemeral uh, Amazon EMR instances. Um, they're using spot capacity. And they're using S3 with EMRFS um, as their data later for, for Apache Spark. And I want to point that out because I'm going to go into some best practices here um, in my next few slides. 
And this is hitting um, some of the best practices. So um, this is a really good way to use um, Spark and, and lay out your data. So let me get into that. All right. So th this is not just specific to Spark. Um, for any big data processing, either using Spark or Presto or Hive or Pig or, or any type of, of big data processing you might want to do on AWS, um, separating your storage from compute is a really, really good best practice for, for these reasons. So the first one, optimize cluster size based on um, compute requirements. So if you don't separate your storage and your compute, oftentimes you have to size your cluster based on your data set. So if you have a very large data set and you want to put that all on HDFS, for example, on, on, on a Hadoop cluster, then you have to size your data set with a number of nodes that have, for enough disk capacity to store your storage. So if you don't have that many compute requirements, high compute requirements for that specific workload, you're going to be oversizing your, your cluster because you just need that size of a cluster to put all your data on it. So and that's not efficient. That's not a good use uh, of your money. Um, it'd be much better if you can just size the cluster appropriately for the, the compute that you need. And so in a very similar fashion, if you separate your storage and compute, um, you can select your optimal EC2 instance types. So it's, it's kind of similar to the first one. So if I'm not separating storage and compute, I may have to pick you know, a dense storage type, like an I2 instance, for example, or a D2 instance, or our older HS1 instance family that has you know, dense local storage on there for your, um, uh, your, your data needs. But if you've got a job like running Spark, for example, and you want to take advantage of Spark's um, you know, memory caching that it does, you might want to run your jobs on R3 instances. And if you separate storage and compute, you can do that. You can select R3 instances to get the best performance out of your jobs while leaving your data in S3. Um, and so when I do separate storage from compute, um, what I'm not saying is um, generally the best practice is use S3 as your data lake. So Spark, um, especially with Spark with EMR, um, EMR comes with EMRFS, EMR file system, which allows you um, very easy access to S3 and just basically treat it um, like a local file system. And then you can optimize your, your cluster requirements. Again, you can use R3 instances or maybe you want to use C4 instances for compute intensive jobs. Um, so you have the right type of instance type to, to maximize your, your compute capacity for your, for your job. Um, the next good advantage is you can shut down your cluster when not in use. If you have your data with your Hadoop cluster and you need, if you want to shut down the cluster to save money, well, that's not an easy thing to do, especially if you're talking about you know, terabytes of data. Maybe you can hydrate your, your cluster from S3 but you know, that could take hours or maybe even days, depending on how much data you have. And so you're really, it's really painful and not in your best interest to shut down your cluster when you have to back up and rehydrate your cluster um, every time you shut it down and bring it back up. But if your data is native on S3 and you're running your Spark jobs on your computer instances on the data in S3, you're reading from S3, you're writing your output to S3, then you don't have to worry about rehydrating your clusters. So when you're done with a job, you can just shut down all your clusters and you're not paying for any of that. Your data is sitting there in S3 ready for your next jobs to spin up. You can spin up a cluster when you're ready, point it to your data in S3 and off you go. So that's really, really good for cost savings. Um, and 
A similar advantage is you can also, when you do this, you can share data amongst multiple clusters. So let's say you have different types of jobs. Um, FINRA, for example, they do market surveillance and they have different things that they're looking for. So they could spin up a cluster looking for one specific type of activity uh, in their data. And they could point that data in S3, run the job, and when it's um, write the data, output the S3, and shut the cluster down when they're done. But they may have hundreds of these type of jobs. And so instead of sharing one big cluster and worrying about you know, scheduling jobs and getting prioritization and trying to, to, to map between jobs that might run hours, between jobs that run you know, for a few minutes and trying to do that in a single cluster, you can just spin up clusters for these specific workloads and point it to the data in S3. So I could be running hundreds, tens, hundreds of clusters all using that same data in S3 and optimize those clusters for the job I'm running. So if I'm doing a compute intensive job on that data for this specific thing I'm looking for, I'm gonna run those on C4 instances, I'm gonna point it on there, and then I have another job I wanna run on the same, same time using the same data set that might be memory intensive, so I'm gonna run those on R3 instances. So you can really run multiple jobs and you can have your separate teams focus on doing their job the best way they can by spinning up the appropriate type of cluster for their specific job type and just use that shame shared data set on S3. And finally, fault tolerance and disaster recovery. So when you spin up a Hadoop cluster in a traditional way, you, you normally put these in placement groups in a single AZ because there's a lot of internode communication between the nodes. And you're gonna want that really, really fast network access in the, in the same AZ. But the problem is, that's kind of like anti-cloud, right? Hopefully you guys have learned over the week that you know we have multiple availability zones, and you're gonna to wanna to spread your workloads across these availability zones so that you can take advantage of the um, high availability capability. So if we lose one for whatever reason, your jobs are still up and running in um, other availability zones. So you're still gonna to wanna to spin up a cluster in an availability zone, but if you lose that availability zone, it's really easy to bring up a cluster in another one because your data is sitting in S3. Again, you don't have to worry about data hydration. You don't have to worry about losing any of your data because it's all living there on S3 and it's persisted. So it makes it a lot easier to deal with um, the disasters and, and failover and, 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 and deal with recovery because you can just spin up your cluster in another availability zone. Finally, another good practice is to use Spot. So Spot is a way to run compute on uh, AWS, where you're basically bidding on excess um, EC2 capacity that Amazon has. And this will save you, you know, up to 50 to 90% on your compute. And Spot works very, very nicely with these um, ephemeral compute clusters that you can start up and down because you've separated your storage and compute. Because one of the aspects of Spot is if somebody comes in and outbids you, AWS could take your machines away. So if you have all your data on your clusters and you're not separating storage and compute, that's painful. You don't want your machines to go away, go away if you're running on spot. However, if you're using um, S3 as your data lake and you're separating your storage and compute, if you do happen to lose your compute because somebody outbid your spot, it's okay, you can just bring it up in another um, availability zone, you know, do another spot ask, and, and you're off and running. So those two work very, very well, well together. The separating storage and compute and then pairing that with Spot to save money um, to run your workloads. So again, this isn't specific to Spark, but it works very, very nicely on Spark. Spark um, works very well with, um, with S3, and it's a really good practice. So with that, I am actually going to turn it over to Brett now, and he's going to go into his specific use case 
for um, their market surveillance using Spark. Good. Thank you, Bob. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out here this uh, Friday morning. I know it's been a long week for everybody, and many of you might have been uh, out late last night. Uh, I think there was some sort of event going on around here um, for all of us. So thank you for showing up. Uh, and I'm going to go into uh, what FINRA has done here um, and how we implemented a lot of the best practices that Bob went over. Uh, my name is Brett Shriver, Senior Director, FINRA, specialized in market reg surveillance. Uh, Ricardo Portillo was our lead architect on this uh, specific um, project. Hopefully we'll have some time at the end. We can go into some Q&A on more detailed implementation specifics or any uh, technical questions you have. So first off, who is FINRA? I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with us, uh, but we're a financial industry regulatory authority. We're actually an independent, non-government, private sector uh, company. Uh, we have responsibility to regulate 90% of the equities market by volume and about 60% of the options uh, market by volume in the United States. That can account to up to 75 billion records a day, and they're coming whether we're ready to handle them or not. It's like a fire hose of data coming at us. We've got a big data problem, um, and it isn't going away. It's only getting worse. Uh, we have to keep that data online so that our end users, after we produce things that might require them to go in and investigate uh, or build a case on some sort of malicious activity in the market, we keep it online for a couple years. Legal process is not instantaneous, so they need to be able to go back and retrieve that data on demand uh, so that they can build their uh, evidence case or rerun stuff or do analysis to help them with what they're doing. So that has driven the need to have 20 petabytes of data online. We also have to rebuild or reconstruct the market. We have data coming in from all sorts of sources. We have the exchanges sending us the proprietary feeds from their matching engines. We have broker-dealers sending us their feeds. All of them are running on slightly different clocks, so we have kind of a clock drift problem. Uh, in order to figure out what's happened in the market, we actually have to kind of replay the market um, in two ways. One is an order comes into the system. It may get executed right away, or it may get routed. It may get partially executed. It may get canceled, replaced. These, we call it an order life cycle, tend to build a, a tree, a directed graph, if you will, that we have to traverse all these billions of records and try and reconstruct after the fact. That has left us storing in the order of trillions of nodes and edges of these reconstructed order life cycles online. We also have to be able to, on the fly, replay the market so that end users or analysts that are trying to build a case and figure out exactly what did happen around the suspicious activity in the market can see not only the top of book, but they may see the depth of the book. So there was a 1,000 shares available at $58. Well, what's available just a notch below that? Um, and that's very important to make sure when we're doing these surveillances that the broker-dealer executed at the best possible price for their customer. Some more uh, kind of by the numbers about what FINRA does. We oversee more than 3,900 securities firms, approximately 640,000 brokers. We handle 6 billion shares traded every day in the U.S., and we run hundreds of surveillance patterns against every one of those trades every single day. It amounts to processing on the order of 6 terabytes of data every day. And we don't do it just because we like to process data. The end result, uh, we try to produce value for our business. 
In 2015, we had over 800 fraud cases that were referred. We referred to the SEC, and we levied more than $191 million in fines and restitution. So that's kind of what we get out of all of our big data processing that we do. Now I want to kind of focus more on MySpace, which is the actual surveillances themselves that run across all of these billions of records and come up with the events that the end users are interested in looking at. We call these events of regulatory interest, suspicious activity. They're going to be associated with various dimensions, could be a firm dimension, could be an issue dimension, and usually a window of time. Uh, we have manipulation surveillances that we run where people are actually trying to manipulate the market in order to uh, unfairly realize a profit. We also have a whole suite of compliance surveillances which make sure that firms out there trading on the markets adhere to the various SEC rules and regulations and FINRA also has their, our own rules and regulations. Specifically the ones on Spark are very focused around time ordered events. Uh, in order to figure out if things are, dis if orders are displayed properly to the book so that Every exchange knows that this order is out there and can be executed on. We have to take all of our data feeds in from the exchanges and the orders, order them by time, try and solve our fuzzy time problem, and then kind of walk a state machine as we look through the activity in all the various markets at once and ensure that orders were handled in a fair manner and an equitable manner for the end user. With 12 markets and exchanges, 75 billion records, that becomes a very, very complex problem in terms of getting through that compute on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we have to get through it because the next day's data is coming and we're obligated to, to surveil every single trade and every single order that we receive across many, many different uh, scenarios. So more detailed examples of the types of things we're looking for. These are more familiar maybe to you guys if you follow the markets at all. Front running. Uh, again, it's a very time-ordered thing we're looking for. Uh, Basically, a, a customer places a big order with a broker-dealer. It's an order big enough that he thinks it might actually move the market. So what he does is try and trade in front of that, either for his own advantage, maybe for one of his other clients' advantage. If it's a sell order that he thinks is going to drive the market down, then maybe he'll try and execute a smaller sell order in front of it before the price drops, and then go ahead and push the sell order from the customer through and then do whatever action he might want to do after that. Uh, to realize profit or avoid a loss. That's front-running. Uh, we also have layering. This is a very common technique that we see amongst our market manipulation uh, um, surveillances. They, they all follow a pretty similar model. Basically, somebody will try and establish an interest on one side of the market, either the sell or the buy side, slightly away from the market. So they'll put a large volume of orders out there to try and move the price. Like if there's a lot of sell interest slightly away from the top of book, then maybe the, uh, the buy will go down. Um, so what they do is they put false interest on one side of the market to try and trigger an event on the other side of the market, which is the one they actually plan on executing. When that executes, you'll see the entire interest that they had on the other side of the book disappear. So we have surveillances looking through all the volume across all the exchanges for one or two firms out there trying to put some false interest, orders they never actually intend to execute, um, and then executing the other side of the market, and then you'll see a pattern of that canceling, and the, suddenly the interest goes away. Another type 
of surveillance that we have to do across these billions of records is to make sure that when a customer places an order, that it's actually executed at a fair price, the best price that's out there. So we see that the, uh, the top line there, that's the bid, the bottom line's the ask. We would expect that any customer order coming in should execute within those bands. In this particular example, we're showing uh, the diamond is the actual trade execution. It's outside of those bands, so for some reason, the, the broker-dealer executed it at a price that was not favorable to their actual customer. Presumably, they have some way to, to get the margin and receive some benefit on their own. So another part of this whole picture is that when an exchange or, or when a, a firm has a, a limit order, it needs to go out and display at the top of the, the book if it's the best price they have out there. Um, if they're an obligated market maker, then they have to show their full volume and the price out on the market. If that is then the best uh, price across all the exchanges, it should get reflected in the universal best bid and offer that's out there in the market. And the purpose of this is just to show so that we have kind of an exchange view of the market and we have a universal view of the market. And we have surveillances trying to make sure that things are displayed so that everybody can know that that interest in that particular stock is out there and has a fair chance to uh, execute against it. Um, and that it, it's also we need to make sure that they're handling it within the exchange. So what we end up with is a bunch of parallel time series events that we then have to scan and walk kind of on an issue by issue, sometimes firm by firm basis, uh, in order to decide and determine if there was manipulation or if orders were handled on a fair or fairly for the rest of the market. From the uh, customer side, this is kind of an example of if they have the best bid and offer and they placed with their firm, they would expect to go out there and see it show up as the top of book. In this instance, they've placed a, a limit order, and we see that the top of the book does not reflect that. So that would be a violation that we're trying to search for. So how did we used to do this? We uh, used a primarily database appliance-centric solution, and it served us reasonably well for a few years. Um, and we used to, I think, be on even an Oracle solution years before that. We had two tiers of storage. We had our primary storage, which we ran all of our surveillances against. That was a database appliance, had a sliding window of data available in time. We ran on the order of 300 SQL jobs against this, this sliding window every day. Those were the actual surveillances that are going out and looking for the various non-compliant or market, market manipulative activity out there. Now that data would then uh, go to the second tier storage, which was also uh, appliance-oriented, and that had a longer retention period. The primary use case for that was end users now trying to investigate these events that our surveillance has kicked out, and they would need to go back and replay the market. They would uh, need to uh, do audit trails, um, analytics, diagnostics, whatever they may have to do to put a disposition on any particular event that our surveillance has kicked out. That would go on the two-year retention policy. The surveillance window typically held about 20 days, 20 market days worth of data, so a month. Um, this had a lot of pain points. And then, I guess, aside that, we had um, 
a disaster recovery site, which we actually hosted on our prem. The production site was uh, hosted in a data center. And that was basically a full-blown production mirror of what we had in production. So in the event of a disaster, we're still obligated to run our surveillances. We don't want to end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal because we had a disaster and we couldn't get up and running. So we basically had to double pay for everything to keep mirrored infrastructures up and running. A lot of pain points in the legacy uh, architecture that when we chose as an organization to migrate our market regulation infrastructure to AWS in the cloud, we were targeting to resolve. The legacy architecture, extremely expensive to maintain. It was on the uh, seven digits, and that's probably a little uh, on the conservative side, probably more like eight digits a year to, to keep that infrastructure up and running. We would have to requisition and size that in advance. It was uh, of the two layers of storage. One was a scale-up architecture. The other is had some potential to scale out. Way You had to bring that hardware in place, stand it up. You had to, it was a three-month process by the time you get purchase orders approved, get it into your loading docks, get it into your data centers, get it up and running. Uh, then you have a, not, a data migration process. And then over a, a weekend, you try and flip all the applications over to this new hardware, and you cross your fingers that you're up and running on Monday, because on Tuesday, you don't want to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So that also, as Bob was talking about, this same infrastructure had a tightly coupled storage and compute. So again, if we think we're going to see volatility, and we always see volatility in the market where maybe a Brexit happens, market volumes double from where they are today, uh, we have to be ready to handle that. So we're always looking out multiple years in the future trying to pre-buy that infrastructure so that we're ready for that. In general, we see market events happen once or twice a year that will literally double our previous high watermark in terms of the volume. Uh, and we're on a constant uh, slope upwards in terms of the volume we get every single year because volumes are going up on the order of, say, 20% a year, high-frequency trading, more and more prevalent, systems get faster and faster. So it was a continuous struggle to keep up with that demand. It also didn't really support the industry movement. We're slowly moving more and more towards real time in terms of our, our data feeds coming into our systems. Uh, that was a very batch-oriented solution. So really not going to take us to the future. Um, and it was really kind of running out of legs in terms of state-of-the-art infrastructure. We have a lot of back-processing and reprocessing requests. Either we get data issues that come in and require us to rerun surveillances because upstream data was bad for some time period, or we have a, a defect in one of our surveillances and we have to go run it back to make sure we didn't miss anything. These reruns can sometimes span months, uh, half a year, whatever. The only way to do that on the legacy architecture was to provision some extra capacity. And if a lot of these things hit us at once, then we would have to carve out that excess capacity and time slice stuff through. The actual surveillance platform only had 30 days of data in it, so we would actually have to roll replay data from our um, long-term storage through that infrastructure and run it. could take months to actually replay or rerun surveillances in this old architecture. Uh, that was particularly problematic because the business wants to know pretty much so right away if there was a problem in the data or if there's a problem in our surveillance, what was the impact, what did we miss, that type of thing. And we also had no ability to fine-tune our compute model and our storage model once we purchased it. So we're basically projecting years in advance what our compute 
needs in terms of do we need to be I.O. optimized or memory optimized, and there was certainly no way on individual batch jobs to optimize on a per job um, basis. So obviously we landed on AWS and Spark for a handful of our most complex surveillances. Uh, we're here talking about today, the ones that are really focused on the, the time-ordered events. Um, we looked at other things too. We uh, considered Java MapReduce. We kind of did not go that route because it was hard to maintain. One of the things we wanted to get out of this redesign was the ability to debug and test our code, which we really struggled with in a SQL-oriented uh, world. When you have billions of records, you're running these jobs, making a lot of temp tables, and there's something wrong, it's, it's hard to step through that and figure out exactly where something blew up on you. Uh, we looked at Apache Giraffe to help so solve our order lifecycle problem. It was really immature at that particular time, so we decided that it might have some potential down the road, but we didn't go that route. And we landed on uh, running AWS Spark on EMR. We have the portfolio of our surveillances that are very um, compliant or very good fits for set-based solutions. We actually migrated them in Hive just because SQL to SQL made it less cost prohibitive to do this whole migration. The ones that were particularly performant, uh, had high performance needs, those we targeted for Spark, which when we started this effort, uh, I guess it was pushing three years ago, no way near as mature as it was now, so it was kind of a bit of an R&D project for these, uh, these handful of surveillances that, that really had the, the highest constraints on compute and memory. So this is kind of the uh, illustration of the problem that would really blow us up on, on the surveillances we targeted for Spark. We have a lot of quotes on a lot of different venues and a couple of order, orders of magnitude larger than the number of trades. The trades tend to be the trigger events for something it's interested in. When somebody trades, that's the opportunity to make money, whether that was uh, fair or by manipulation. So we need to put these, build these time series events across uh, firms, issues, large partitions, we would get Cartesian products in the old SQL-based solution. And that we managed to work through, except that we would have hotspots on some days where there was a lot of interest in, say, Microsoft. And then for one day in a, in a whole, and actually only a small time slice of period, we couldn't actually run our surveillance. So we'd have to do some sort of one-off code drop to actually target uh, that specific time slice to get the surveillance through on just one issue. And when you're surveilling across thousands of issues, you really don't want to be doing one-off uh, code drops, even if it only happens once or so a year. So moving to a more procedural language in Spark, we're able to, to turn this more into a union, the data, sort the data, and then walk the data. We could keep multiple uh, states of the various exchanges in, in memory at once and walk them for say I give an issue, and keep track of what the market looked like. Uh, and if it were streaming data, we would do the exact same thing. So we're kind of ready for a streaming real-time world. But we could keep a state of the market in memory uh, and, and do comparisons across the exchanges to make sure that orders are being displayed correctly when they come in uh, and that they're being executed at a fair price. So here's an example of the architecture we used. Uh, we feel that it adheres to a lot of the best practices that Bob went over in his, his part of the presentation. 
Uh, Amazon S3 is the primary storage, a real game changer for FINRA in terms of the, the market uh, regulation space. We now have one single gold source of all our data, and for as long as we're willing to pay, we can shrink that, we can grow that, we can push it off the glacier, we can pull it back easily on demand. We have it there. It's cataloged. It's versioned. So if we have something where we need to replay the data, it's out there. If we have an instance or an example of when we have to actually go pull the data, what did it look like at this specific instant in time? Because I'm building a court case. It's two years old. The data is drifted slightly in two years. We can actually go back and give our users exactly what the data looked like when the surveillance ran. So we don't get some case kicked out of court because we can't reproduce the results and then you know, somehow that, that brings doubt into the picture. Uh, on the right, we have an example of a, a very large surveillance that runs, has multiple steps. The first one where we tend to pull the data off of S3. Uh, the second one where we're, they're ordering it um, by time and across multiple dimensions. That tends to be more of a, a memory intensive step. And then the final one, we're actually crunching and doing the, the hard analytics on the data, trying to find the violations. That's much more compute intensive. With this new architecture, as Bob was stating, we can actually break down our surveillance into multiple steps and choose different cluster types. We'll actually spin up on EMR a different cluster type optimized for the constraints and resources of that particular step in their surveillance. Um, so here we're showing an example where we go I.O. and then we go memory and then we move on to compute. Every step along the way, we can persist then back to S3, the intermediate results. This has a lot of value to us for multiple reasons. Some of these, some of these surveillances can run for hours and hours. The last thing you want to do, especially if you're trying to leverage spot pricing, which might not be as stable, um, is to have to rerun because the job crashes or something goes wrong in the middle from the beginning. By persisting out to S3, the intermediate steps, we have a restart a point of failure, more or less whenever we want. It also brings the, the advantage of being able to do analysis on the data, either uh, short term during the development cycle, on the intermediate steps at a much more granular level in a much larger time frame than we could on the old appliance-oriented architecture. We use this for multiple reasons. It helps us debug things. It helps us test things. If the users want to uh, do some sort of enhancement, we can actually go and look at some of the intermediate steps and provide them output that we couldn't do before. Like if we do this enhancement, it can have this impact. And this is based on three months of historical data that we're now actually able to store as long or short as we want. Um, and that provides a big benefit in terms of our development cycle to the end users and in terms of our resiliency, restart at the point of failure, um, and, and our ability to, to test things and give to our testers. Here's some of the intermediate states and what we think they should look like as we go along. So I mentioned spot a little uh, earlier. So spot has a, the potential to save us a ton of money when we run this stuff. Um, spot prices fluctuate. We run a lot of our stuff still in batch so we can actually monitor spot pricing if we want. And we can go out and pick times of the day where instance types are cheaper, we can run then. Um, as we showed in the previous slide, we can go out and pick instance types that are optimized towards the particular step in the process that we're running. And 
we can also achieve uh, either cheaper cost when we run or if we have a need to make sure that we get it done more quickly and that there's no loss of spot nodes for whatever reason. We can go on demand if we want to, too. So we have a lot of flexibility now that we've uh, gone to AWS running these in Spark in terms of what, trading off what we want to pay with how fast we need it done, that type of thing. Um, it's been a, a, a real game changer with Infinera um, for allowing us to reprocess, uh, keep up with market demand, keep up with uh, boost demands. And Amazon continuously comes out with richer and richer tool sets to automate more and more of this in terms of auto configuration, et cetera. So we've uh, been able to play with that and experiment with their tool sets. Uh, this, this also allows us to experiment what-if scenarios on dev boxes, because now they, they can just go out and spin up a cluster and play with scenarios during a dev cycle, or if they're looking for ways to optimize on compute, they can try it out. Um, without trying to steal time from production servers. So overall, what benefits did we realize from this migration effort? Uh, and we had a lot of them outlined earlier that we put forth in our business case. And across the board, I think we were able to deliver on them. We had an order of magnitude savings, in, in, uh, particularly on the ones that were running on Spark in terms of the uh, old on-prem design versus hosted AWS running on Spark. Our response time has dropped dramatically. We're no longer trying to do rerun request, um, analysis requests. SEC might come in and say, run this ad hoc request. We're no longer having to queue that stuff up in spare capacity that may or may not be there, uh, depending on market volumes and system maintenance. We can spin stuff up on demand. It's now just a cost number. It's a business decision to get through, through that. Things that used to take months to turn around and give to the business, we can now turn around in days or weeks. We can actually feed them results faster than they can process it. Scaling, I think we all know scaling in this architecture, uh, it, it just takes that almost out of the equation. Uh, we can play with different methods of scaling. We can scale up as large as we want. Uh, we can scale. Uh, CPU intensive nodes, memory intensive, all that we've managed to realize uh, in, in its spades. So expected future benefits, I mentioned, uh, particularly with the Spark solution, uh, we expect to be able to support the move towards more and more real-time data. As more data starts coming in from exchanges, as more data starts coming in from the broker-dealers real-time, we're going to be able to, to adapt to that and build a more streaming uh, surveillance program in Spark, where we really just couldn't do that in, in the SQL world running on the database appliances. That was really a, a batch-oriented architecture. I mentioned experimentation with uh, new instance types. Uh, we can experiment with ways to save money. Uh, and we're looking at converting a lot of that high portfolio that we just pushed up to the cloud, as is the Spark, for a few various reasons. Um, one is that on this slide you'll see that uh, we, we actually held a competition for ways to save money on the AWS Spark infrastructure, and, and people played with just porting the uh, Hive surveillances, as is straight to Spark QL with as uh, few changes as possible. So a lot of them looks like they might be a 2x cost savings just doing that. Uh, other things we're looking to do is migrate to the latest versions of Spark, uh, take advantage of the latest APIs as they come out, and I think I already mentioned uh, real-time 
um, adaptation of our surveillance portfolio. So that's the high level. I'd like to thank you guys again for coming out on this Friday morning after a long week. Uh, we will be, we're here now to take any more technical questions or any more in-depth questions. Uh, please remember to complete your evaluations. And if you would like to have any more information, uh, unfortunately we're at the end of the entire uh, week here. These presentations have already been done, but they should be out there on the uh, reInvent site if you're looking for more detailed deep dives into some of the other relevant portions of our architecture. Uh, some particular ones that are interesting that we've done talks on earlier in the week, building a secure data science platform. That is focused specifically around Spark, and we're looking at third-party uh, providers to basically provide the end users, whether they be data scientists or analysts, the ability to stand up clusters in the cloud and be provisioned with all the tools they need without having to be a technologist. Uh, so just to be able to, to go to a, a front end at the click of a button, stand up and provision the size of cluster to do whatever analytics and data science they want to with the tool sets that are standardized in our company already there, uh, and Spark being a prime one there um, with some of the machine learning stuff coming in at the click of a button. So we're in uh, the middle phases of rolling that out. Uh, the thinner in the cloud, big data enterprise is kind of an enterprise overview of our whole migration effort. For those of you that are, might be migrating to the cloud, that one's uh, worth going to see kind of lessons learned and best practices for migrating an entire infrastructure to the cloud. And the data lake for big data on Amazon S3. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of the value add here came from this gold source of data that is, those, that is versioned um, and we can get it at a point of time, and it's cataloged. So everybody that reads or writes to the lake, the information is cataloged with a lot of metadata. We have versions. We can pull whatever we want in the instant in time. That might be a presentation you're interested, relevant to this as well. 